Welcome to Third Man Walking. In a moment, I'll review a 510 session that I played last week. But before I do, I wanted to briefly discuss something I saw happen recently. I was at a 510 table and a player had gotten up from his seat. So another player had to post his small blind, $5, on the button. Now you don't see this in casinos in some other areas, but in LA sometimes the button will have to post a blind because the button always moves and is never dead. So sometimes there will be a button who posts the small blind and then the actual small blind also posts a small blind and then there's the big blind. So the preflop setup here is a little bit weird, but I'm just going to call the player on the button in this hand the button, even though he's also posting a small blind and the player in the small blind seat, the small blind. Anyway, it folded around to the button who already had $5 out and without saying anything, he threw out a purple $25 chip. Now this was of course, technically just a call because the player had only thrown out one chip, but it was obvious that he'd intended to raise since he had opened a $30 in previous hands and had plenty of $5 chips with which to just call if that's what he'd intended. While some players in LA will occasionally use the one chip rule to angle shoot or just to be annoying, there was no indication that was happening this time, and since the player already had a chip in front of him and he was actually using two chips to make his $30 raise, common sense suggested that he genuinely was trying to raise and didn't realize that tossing out only a $25 chip technically wasn't one. This player was, by the way, a recreational player I hadn't seen before, and he was sitting with a stack of almost $8,000 in a $1,500 cap game. I hadn't been at the table long, and I still don't know how good or bad this player was, but my guess is that he probably hadn't won all those chips by playing perfectly. So then the player in the small blind seat, who was a pro, put out a single $5 chip to complete, and the player on the button immediately protested that he'd been trying to raise. Now, often what will happen is that the player in the small blind will say, oh, okay, cool, you were trying to raise, and then decide what to do next from there, maybe issuing a friendly warning to his opponent that his action indicated a call, but respecting his intention to raise. That is, however, not what the guy in the small blind did. Instead, he insisted, correctly, that he was technically right that the player on the button had only called, and when the button continued to protest, the small blind insisted on calling the floor over. This was in a large casino, so after a couple minutes, the floor still wasn't there, and the action at the table completely stopped. At this point, I gently suggested to the small blind, who was, again, a pro, that he let it go so that action could continue. He responded, I'm right, aren't I? And I said, of course, you're technically right. He then said, then why are you talking to me? And I said nothing. Eventually, the player on the button backed down and accepted that he had just called. The two players in the big blind played a pot that checked all the way down to the river, as it concluded, the small blind showed his hand, which was queen 10 offsuit. So he completely stopped action at the table for a couple minutes and insisted the player on the button limp, even though he had clearly intended to raise, also that he could complete with queen 10 offsuit rather than having to fold it. As I mentioned, small blind was a pro and the button was a recreational player I hadn't seen before and haven't seen since. I don't know who out there needs to hear this, but don't be this pro. When you have position on a recreational player with nearly $8,000 in front of them, count your blessings and don't almost literally nickel and dime them. Don't try to get them on technicalities, especially when they probably aren't angling you. Don't slow down the action. Show some goodwill toward the people who let you make your living.
If you can't be nice because it's good to be kind, then do it because recreational players with five full buy-ins in front of them are often looking for excuses to rack up and book a huge win. It's December 16th, and I just returned from a 510 session in which I played a bunch of hands where I was trying to get my opponents to bluff. So in this first hand, we're about $1,600 effective. The low jack raises to $35, and I re-raise to $120 on the button with pocket aces, with the ace of hearts. My opponent calls, and we head to a flop. With $250 in the pot, it comes 765 with the seven and five of hearts. And again, I've got pocket aces with the ace of hearts. So he checks, and in game, I'm sort of thinking about whether I get to just kind of go ham with pocket aces here and let the chips fall where they may. I think it's close between just betting the flop and betting a blank turn and hoping for the best and checking and playing defensively. This time I do opt to play defensively. A board like 765 is going to favor my opponent for the most part, not me. So even though I've got a pretty strong hand with pocket aces, um, I decide to check back. So there's still 250 in the pot heading to the turn, which is in offsuit six. My opponent checks, and I think after having checked the flop, betting on the turn makes a lot of sense on the surface. However, one thing I know about the player pool in mid-stakes Los Angeles games is that players love check-raising the turn after the preflop raiser caps themselves by checking the flop. They just love it, and they do it more than a solver will recommend. It's a hard strategy to play against, but they're just doing it so much. They're doing it with bluffs. They're doing it with the value hands. They're doing it with hands in the middle of their range. Hands like, say, on this board, 7656. Six. They'll do it like if they had, you know, A7 suited or something like that. They might check raise with that. So that's pretty tricky to play against. And maybe what I ought to be doing is just betting the turn, calling their check raise on the turn, and then calling a jam on the river with pocket aces. Yeah, maybe that would be better, but it seems like a really high variance option. And if I check back here, I still give my opponent rope to bluff on the river. So I do check back and there's still 250 in the pot heading to the river and it's an offsuit deuce, which is a great card. And my opponent bets $340 into 250. So over bets the pot, almost 1.5 X pot. And I think with aces, I mean, I think my opponent would be quite surprised if he could see my cards at this point and see how good they are. So I do flick the chips in and my opponent just mucks. So I don't end up having to show down the pocket aces, but pick off a pretty big bluff. I'm just gonna briefly hit pause on this hand review. It's been a couple days since I recorded this and I've studied and thought about this hand quite a lot. And I think if I'm going to play the flop and the turn as a check, which is okay, then I need to think more seriously about raising here on the river. I did think about that a little bit in game, but probably not as hard as I should have. My thinking at the time was that my opponent's overbet sizing 
represented a hand that was either very strong or very weak, and that therefore my hand wasn't good enough to raise. But I'm not sure that's very consistent with the idea that I play the flop and turn conservatively because I fear a check raise with very strong hands as well as with medium strength ones. I think that my opponent could potentially use this overbet sizing with a hand like pocket tens, in which case on a really good run out like this, I am incentivized to try to get more money in. So I think just overall, I didn't put as much money as I should have into the middle with this hand because I don't really know what my opponents are doing with these check raises on the turn when the flop gets checked through. And that's something that I need to think about because it suggests that I'm not thinking about spots like this very clearly. So in retrospect, I don't love the way I played this hand and I'm going to think about how to play spots like this better. A little bit after this, I have queen 10 of clubs under the gun. We're playing eight handed. So I raise the queen 10 of clubs under the gun to $35 and only the hijack calls. So there's about $80 in the pot heading to the flop, which comes six, four deuce with the four and deuce of clubs. So I flop two overs and a flush draw. So out of position here, my opponent probably is as loose as a lot of recreational players are in spots like this, can have every set. He can have pocket sixes, pocket fours, pocket deuces, and that's probably proportionally more of his range than it is of mine. He also benefits more from turn cards that could change the complexion of the board than I do with my range. So I do check. My opponent bets $45, and with my over cards and flush draw, I make the call. So there's 170 in the pot now heading to the turn, which is the 10 of hearts. So now six, four, deuce, 10 with now two clubs and two hearts. And I have queen, 10 of clubs for top pair with a flush draw. I check again, my opponent bets $125. And I think this is going to be a pretty straightforward call. So after I make the call, there's 420 in the pot and we're off to a river, which is the deuce of hearts. So now six, four, deuce, 10 deuce with backdoor hearts coming in. I check and my opponent snap bets $400 into 420. Having the queen of clubs in my hand is not the best card to have because I want my opponent to be doing this with club draws that have missed. On the other hand, what's my opponent saying he has here? It certainly makes sense that he would have pocket sixes or pocket fours. Those two hands absolutely make a lot of sense. It's also possible that he could have backdoor hearts. He could have a hand like 9-8 of hearts or 8-7 of hearts. But the speed with which he bet on the river, even after it changed the board, makes me think he's more weighted towards bluffs. And there are lots of bluffs he can have. Lots of 8-7s and, you know, hands like 5-4 suited and just random air balls that are bluffing because I opened the door for him to do so. Los Angeles players are aggressive, and when you give them permission to bluff by being the preflop raiser and then checking it to them, they will often take that permission and run. So I do make the call here, and my opponent just says, you're good. I table my hand, don't make him show his, and I win another pretty nice pot. A bit later, the cutoff seat raises to $30, and I am on the button with 8-7 of diamonds. So I think I would mix between calling and three betting here. 
um, I would sometimes call, I would sometimes re-raise, and which one I would choose would often depend on table factors, how much the player in the cutoff raises, how they respond to three bets, who the players are in the blinds. In this case, I don't know the cutoff very well, and there's nothing really about the blinds that sticks out with regard to this particular spot. So I think it's sort of a flip a coin type situation, and this time I go with the re-raise. So I make it $105. It folds back to the cutoff who makes the call. So we're off to a flop. There's 220 in there, and it comes 976 all hearts. He checks to me. This is sort of an interesting board. It's obviously not a terrible board for my hand. I have middle pair and an open-ended straight draw. But I think I have a lot of hands in my range that just hate these cards, uh, that just hate the, the, the fact that all the cards are sort of in the middle of the board and that they're all hearts. You know, for example, if I have black aces here or black kings, I'm not thrilled about this board. I also have a lot of ace-king type hands that don't hit this board at all. So I think I want to be checking quite a lot here. So I do check and we're off to a turn. So there's still 220 in there and it comes and offsuit nine. So now nine, seven, six, nine. And again, I have eight, seven of diamonds. My opponent bets 225 into 220. So full pot and not much choice here, but to make the call with middle pair and an open ender. So there's 670 in the pot heading to the river, which is an offsuit six. So now nine, seven, six, nine, six with three hearts, and again, I have eight seven of diamonds. My opponent bets 575, and I think when he bets this big, he's specifically saying he has a nine, and certainly it's possible that he has a nine, but I do need to have some hands to call down with, and this is a pretty good one. When I have eight seven of diamonds, I block hands like nine eight of diamonds or nine seven of diamonds that my opponent might call my three bet with pre-flop, and I also block pocket sevens. When my opponent bets this big on the river, he's not really saying he has a flush anymore. Although I think it actually would be pretty cool if he bet this size uh, with a flush here on a double paired board, knowing that it's pretty likely to be good. I, I don't think that's especially likely. I feel like he's specifically saying he has a he has a nine. He might, he might not. And again, it's a spot where I've given him a lot of rope to bluff. And when I do that and I have a hand that's reasonable to call down with, I should call down. So I do make the call here and my opponent shows queen nine of diamonds for a full house. Uh, so it makes a slightly light preflop call and uh, then I think plays the rest of the hand very well from there. So I'm two for three on my big bluff catches for the day. Uh, unfortunately, this is the biggest one and it's the one I'm wrong about. So I've lost most of my profit for the day. Fortunately, there's one more big spot I have yet to play. And in this one, I raise to $35 in the hijack with ace 10 of hearts. It folds to the button, who is a young pro, I believe from Japan, who raises to $100. It folds back to me, and I think like a lot of pros, this guy is going to be three betting the button more than is optimal, which, you know, fair enough, I do too. But that makes me think that four betting might be a cool play. I ultimately decide not to and just to call because ace 10 of hearts is just too good. I think if I had a hand like ace 5 or ace 4 suited or ace 9 suited, I might turn those hands into bluffs by 4-betting. But in this case, I just call 
with the ace 10 of hearts. So we're off to a flop here, heads up. There's about 210 in the pot and the flop comes 10, eight, eight with two spades and the eight of hearts. Again, I have ace 10 of hearts. I check my opponent bets $75. And against this small bet, I think this is close between calling and raising, but I think I'm mostly supposed to be calling. Uh, and that's what I do in this particular case. So there's 360 in the pot heading to the turn, which is an offsuit nine. So now 10, eight, eight, nine with two spades. And again, I have ace, 10 of hearts. I check and he checks. Now I ran this hand through a solver and it thinks my opponent should be checking back a decent amount with certain really strong hands like pocket tens. I can tell you, I mean, I don't, I don't really think that's happening. This guy doesn't really know me. I can tell he's probably a pro. I'm not sure if he's aware of that about me or not. But either way, against most live opponents, you want to play a very value-driven style. So if he has pocket tens, I'd be quite surprised if he checked the turn, which means that he does not have very many full houses in his range. In fact, at this point, he probably has none. So there's still 360 in the pot heading to the river, which is an offsuit jack. So it's 10, eight, eight, nine, jack. And I think I should check here. And the reason I wanna check is that sometimes my opponent is just going to have ace king or ace five suited or something like that and check back and I'll just win the pot with a pair of tens. So I check and he does not check back and instead bets $250 and now it's back on me. So this is interesting because my hand is clearly not good enough to call. I mean, I, I lose to even any jack at this point. And I think what's likely is that my opponent has some kind of hand with a queen in it. Betting here with a queen is actually pretty thin given the number of full houses I can have. But I think a lot of opponents in 510 will do it. I think I would probably do it depending on who my opponent was. So I think it's pretty likely he has a queen. It does make sense for him to have pocket jacks. So that's one possibility, but I think that's the only full house he really ever has at any frequency in this spot. And meanwhile, I just have lots of those kinds of hands. I It makes, it makes total sense for me to have pocket jacks. I could probably have pocket tens that just called on the flop because uh, I have the board so heavily dominated. I could have pocket nines that turn to full house. It just makes tons of sense for me to have all kinds of, of very, very strong hands here. So instead of calling or folding, I turn my hand into a bluff and jam for 13.45 total. My opponent tanks for quite a while and ends up making the fold. He later said that he had king-queen, which makes a lot of sense. He's betting the king-queen because he's hoping that I somehow have a hand with a queen in it and he gets to take me to value town with a six card straight. But instead I bluff and am able to take it down. I just ran this hand through a solver. Um, it didn't actually like the bluff. I just thought the, the shove was a little bit too loose and that the uh, check raise bluff that I should have here most frequently is jack 10, which blocks not only pocket tens, but also pocket jacks, which is the most common full house my opponent could have. But it also says that he should be checking a bunch on the turn with pocket tens. And like I said, I don't really think that's happening 
uh, unless he has a very specific read on me that I'm unaware of. He would also tell me after the hand that he had not seen me bluff before. <laughs> so it's cool to be able to get this one through. I talked on the podcast about a month ago about playing this very effective but pedestrian style of poker against opponents who call too much. And there are lots and lots of players in the pool who I would never try a play like this against because I would just not give them credit for being able to fold a queen here. This guy I was pretty sure could fold a queen. Uh, so it's it's cool to find a spot that I think is likely to be successful a lot of the time to not only recognize the spot, but to act on it and uh, to have my bluff be successful. So that ends up being about the margin of victory for the day. I make about $450, which isn't a lot, but I'm happy with myself for finding that big bluff. And it was an interesting session for me because I learned a lot. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking or send me an email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com.